This is an ABC podcast. That's Alofa to Manuel Etayal and good morning. I'm your host, Eggie Dubois, and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Rwandri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Hope your Tuesday morning is going well. And what can you expect on the show today? Well, will Nauru see history repeat itself after the return to power of a controversial figure? Irrespective of who's the president, yes, we would still have concerns that cause significant harm to asylum seekers and refugees. And what help is available for children when affected by natural disasters? Uh, We'll go live with UNICEF and still a lack of culturally appropriate support for Pacifica communities dealing with the justice system in Aotearoa. The system in New Zealand is very much a a Westminster system, but also the way that the processes work in practice can be very isolating, very alienating and very confusing. For more on these stories, stay tuned. I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, a resolution calling for a humanitarian truce between Israel and Hamas was passed at the UN General Assembly last week, but not with unanimous support. Six Pacific countries voted against it, sparking controversy in the region. Marion Farr reports. Speaking in Canberra earlier this month, Fiji's Prime Minister Sitaveni Rambuka called for a zone of peace in the Pacific. And we all strive to do everything we do in our own uh, territories, in our own countries, to promote peace. Two weeks later, he's being accused of not sticking to his principles. Fiji was among six Pacific countries to vote against a UN resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian truce between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. It comes after weeks of fighting and the deaths of thousands of civilians on both sides. How can we say we are working towards a region of peace when this humanitarian call, this call for a ceasefire, is voted against? Secretary-General of the Pacific Conference of Churches, Reverend James Bhagwan, is among many to criticise Fiji's position. It's a great tragedy when we look at the innocent lives that are caught in conflicts such as these. Of the 14 nations that voted against the resolution, almost half were from the Pacific. They include Papua New Guinea, Marshall Islands, Nauru, the Federated States of Micronesia, Fiji and Tonga. Dr Tess Newton-Kane, an expert in Pacific politics from Griffith University, says it's a noteworthy cohort. To my mind, there's no question that Israel or possibly the US has sought to influence voting in the region. Both Israel and the United States also voted against the resolution. The countries have been strengthening diplomatic ties in the Pacific, with PNG recently opening a new embassy in Jerusalem. Dr Newton Cain says the diplomacy efforts are paying off. As we've just seen, you know, you can garner a significant number of votes in the UN by building relationships across the Pacific Islands region. Like Australia, Kiribati, Palau, Vanuatu and Tuvalu abstained from the vote. But there was one outlier. Solomon Islands, which is kind of a standout for voting in favour of the motion, may have taken its lead from the Chinese position as China also voted in favour. In Fiji, the vote has attracted backlash not just from citizens and civil society groups, but also from the Deputy Prime Minister. In a statement, Biman Prasad says it will hurt the country's reputation. His sentiments echo those of former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama. This vote 
goes against the fundamental principles of humanity, of peace and justice that should guide our nation's international policies. He says voting for peace would also help ensure the safety of Fijian peacekeepers deployed in other parts of the Middle East. Thankfully, most of the world has voted for the resolution for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. And I thank them for this sensible action. It's a point that struck a chord with Fijian mother Loata Liku, whose son recently left for a peacekeeping mission in Sinai. It's very dangerous eh, to think about the war eh? and we give our sons to go there. She's concerned about his safety. I just can't stop my tears. I'm very worried about him. But others have supported the government's stance. Mikael Mundralangi is a Fijian member of the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem and was in Israel when Hamas's attack took place on October 7. The picture comes up of those citizens who welcomed us being dragged, the babies killed. Israel says around 1,400 people were killed and more than 200 taken hostage in the assault. Mikael Mundralangi says he's confident in Fiji's stance. Well, I don't know the full story in terms of foreign policy and the shift in it, but there would have been a very valid reason. Fijian citizen Mikaeli Mudrenlangi ending Marion Farr's report. Now to the human rights group Amnesty International. They say it hopes the return to power of a controversial figure in Nauru will not see history repeat itself. David Adiang is the country's new president after MPs elected him to replace Russell Kuhn, who lost a vote of no confidence last week. He was the right man, uh, right hand man rather, of former President Baron Wanga, who came to power a decade ago. Mr Adiang held the justice and finance portfolios until 2019. During that time, the Wanga government deported the resident magistrate, cancelled the Chief Justice's visa and suspended opposition MPs for speaking to foreign media. Even Facebook was banned and the cost of a journalist visa was raised from $200 to $8,000. It was also when the Australian government sent hundreds of asylum seekers to Nauru, including children under its policy of offshore processing. Kate Schutz is Amnesty International's Pacific researcher and says it was a period when human rights were consistently trampled and hopefully never happens again. I mean, we need to look at this collectively as Nauru has human rights responsibilities and uh, David Adiang has been in Parliament for a number of years, many of those in senior government positions. So I think there is some collective responsibility there as a senior official within the Nauru government. But certainly over the last decade, we've seen some horrific abuses of refugees and asylum seekers happening on Nauru. Uh, kids in detention. There was a Facebook ban in 2015 that went on for over a year. We've seen the arrest of opposition MPs for peacefully protesting and we've seen the removal of officers of the court and judicial officers at that. So, you know, we have seen a lot of um, political instability turmoil and violations of human rights in the country. Um, But I would say a new appointment offers new opportunities um, to respect and protect human rights in Nauru, which is all the more important now that we've recently heard that there's been 
11 Tamil-speaking asylum seekers uh, sent to Nauru again. So what we really don't want to see here is history repeating itself. Right, and so do you have concerns then about uh, the future treatment of refugees under David Young? I think irrespective of who's the president, yes, we would still have concerns for the safety and the well-being of those um, refugees and asylum seekers. And I think, um, you know, what we're seeing, though, is the same people within government there for um, a long period of time, uh, you know, and some of those had some involvement in the past government decisions that were made that caused significant harm to asylum seekers and refugees. Obviously, there's a lot more information um, publicly and in the media about the level of harm that the first iteration of sending refugees um, in 2012 caused um, to them, particularly families and young people. And so I hope that there would be more awareness and more information out there so that those errors of the past are not repeated again. In 2018, uh, David Adeyang, as Finance Minister, sacked the Supreme Court Judge Geoffrey Mukey after... Muki had ruled the trial of the Nauru 19 could not be fair. Do you think that incident and the wider treatment of the Nauru 19 has been resolved? I mean, I think there's a lot of issues that remain unresolved in the sense that, yeah, we've seen this pattern of silencing, um, you know, political opposition, silencing media, um, banning Facebook, which is social media, so that people can't speak out on it, and a real blocking of people from being able to um, report on the situation of asylum seekers and refugees. And I think it shows a real aversion to hearing um, opposition voices and hearing the other side, which I think is really important for any effective government to operate. And that was Kate Schutze from Amnesty International speaking to Mackenzie Smith. The United Nations Agency for Children, UNICEF, says around half of the 50,000 people estimated to have been affected by Cyclone Lola in Vanuatu are children. Assessments are still being carried out to determine the full extent of the damage caused by Lola's passage through the archipelago last week. In its own situation report, UNICEF says it's working with the Vanuatu government to help and has supplies for more than 7,000 people on standby ready to be dispatched. It's also ready to train responders to safeguard children children and provide a psychosocial first aid. Joining us to discuss its part in the response is UNICEF Child Protection Officer Rebecca Olo. With that I say good morning Rebecca. Good morning Aggie, thank you so much for having me join you this morning. Absolutely. Uh, Rebecca, look you were there in Port Vila, I mean where is the respo- uh, response effort at currently? So, as you as you said, uh, assessments are currently ongoing on the ground, and the really good thing um, is that the national team here in Port Vila um, has been able to rely on the provincial teams in the affected areas to kind of, you know, go out to the communities and and carry out the assessments to have a bit more of a detailed understanding of the extent of the damage uh, and the needs on the ground. Yeah, Rebecca, look, UNICEF have said that supplies are there for more than 7,000 people on standby, ready to be dispatched. So so when do you think aid will actually reach those in need? For UNICEF, we are, we are on standby to support government. And as soon as we're able to uh, get supplies out, 
um, to the affected provinces and the affected islands. We will be doing that. Just to let you know, Aggie, I was on the ground um, in, on two of the most affected islands on Friday last week. Um, and we were really lucky to have the area administrators on the ground who were able to already have some of that initial understanding um, at the community level in terms of the key key areas. Also based on on previous cyclones that we have had in Vanuatu, we know uh, and can anticipate some of the needs and so are prepared to release supplies from our warehouse here in Port Vila, as well as um, from our Brisbane warehouse um, if, there, if there is that need as soon as possible. That's great to hear. And, you know, when we talk about what someone needs in, in an aftermath, I know we're highlighting children. So what is it that children need in the aftermath of disasters like Lola, considering that you had already dealt with Kevin and Trudy? Uh, Trudy? So we know that, you know, children are among the most, some of the most vulnerable people in the community. And, and this is also because, you know, they, they are younger and they depend on adults who are parents, caregivers, their grandparents, uncles and aunties in the communities to meet their needs. Uh, the lack of uh, access to social services, which is something that we have seen in uh, other cyclones as well as this one, because, you know, there's... there's flooding, there's uh, roadblocks by trees that have fallen down that has then impacted access to social services like health and like education for children means that children, children's health suffers. You know, children are not able to get their vaccines at the healthcare facilities. When we talk about food security issues, it means that the health and nutrition of pregnant and breastfeeding women is at risk, which then has an impact on the health and nutrition of children under five. In terms of education, um, you know, when the roof of a classroom um, has, has blown off, there's going to be a disruption to education services and children are not going to be able to sit in that classroom to learn until such a time as a temporary uh, space is set up. Um, and then, you know, the recovery efforts to get that up and running. So, you know, there are lots of impacts to children during an emergency like this. And I would say that, you know, as, as you've mentioned, this is not the first, you know, this is an out of season cyclone. It was not expected because we were expecting cyclones within the start of the cyclone season, which is tomorrow. But it is out of season. And, you know, it is just eight months from when we had the twin cyclones. Uh, so, you know, the repeti repetitive shock uh, on, on children is, is immense. Yeah. And you mentioned in the UNICEF situation report about child safeguarding and even psychosocial first aid. Can you maybe please explain and elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so we know that, you know, when there's these repetitive uh, shocks on, on, on people, and in this case, uh, children, that the, uh, there, there's an impact on, on, on children in terms of their psychosocial health. And so uh, one of the key priorities for UNICEF uh, in terms of re-establishing those protection services and those protective factors uh, that help children and families to cope is to support with uh, psychosocial support training for frontliners, psychological first aid for frontliners who will be on the ground to start the response as soon as possible. And these uh, frontliners will include teachers, they will include healthcare workers, they will include child protection officers or social workers uh, to equip them with the, the skills and knowledge to be on the ground and to respond to the needs of families. And this is done through, you know, setting up 
child-friendly spaces, in communities, in schools, uh, and working with teachers and healthcare workers and child protection officers to provide really basic kind of counselling, but also psychosocial support through use of play um, to be able to help children to to recover and and to you know bring back the, those coping mechanisms to be able to to get up again and and to go. Look, I have to just quickly ask, though, how does a parent need to approach those conversations with children around natural disasters, if you don't mind? Yeah, so that's those are those are the tough conversations that need to be had. And, you know, for Vanuatu, uh, you know, a child that's 10 years old now has experienced a category five by the time they were eight. Uh, and a category four three years ago, eight months ago, two category fours, now a category five that, you know, came through Vanuatu. So it is repetitive and it is important, as you say, for parents to have these conversations with children and for teachers in schools to have these conversations uh, as part of the, the teaching curriculum and preparedness. Uh, and we know that th- with this cyclone, it is out of season. So, you know, as we go back into communities and as we're working with the frontliners and with the teachers and parents, it's to also not just for the response to the cyclone, but it is also about preparedness and the resilience of, of children and of communities to be able to spring back from a shock like this. So, yeah, it is important times for, for parents to spend time with their children and through song, through play, through, through reading, through uh, just, you know, basic conversations to be able to, to start talking about these very important topics and there are parents out there who are already doing that and teachers who are doing amazing work but of course still more needs to be done absolutely and look rebecca we thank you for the work that you are doing there on the ground level and appreciate your time this morning thank you so much aggie for the time no worries that of course is unicef child protection officer rebecca alol uh, please stay tuned because up next is your news wrap with producer talia olitia here on pacific beat Hi, I'm Sayuli Salamasinovan-Raiki, and I invite you to come with me to explore how our Pacific cultures have evolved with the changing times in a new show, Culture Compass. You'll meet people who are passionate about keeping traditions alive, passing them down to the next generation while adapting old ways to the present. Culture Compass, Tuesdays at 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Yes, good morning and welcome back to Pacific Beat. It is that time where we head around the region to get the latest on your news wrap with the producer, Talia Aluti. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, Aggie. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing good, thank you. <laughs> uh, well, let's get straight into it because it looks like the Papua New Guinean government have ordered an investigation into its refugee programme. Yeah, that's right. And it comes after allegations from a whistleblower that Australian taxpayer funds, which were earmarked for the upkeep of refugees in PNG, were being abused. Now, Deputy Prime Minister John Rosso, who's also responsible for immigration and border security, made the announcement and said that he received documentation that, given the seriousness of the allegations, warrants the investigation into the refugee program and for his government to carry out an audit. Now, the PNG Humanitarian Program, which was previously known as the Refugee Resettlement Arrangement, was a confidential bilateral agreement signed between PNG and Australia in 2021 for PNG to take control of managing the 
remaining men using funds provided by the Australian government. More than 60 refugees and asylum seekers are still at an offshore detention centre on Manus Island. Thank you very much for sharing. China has helped Solomon Islands uh, beef up its security equipment for the Pacific Games. Yeah, that's right. The equipment and materials are valued at five million Solomon Island dollars and were donated by China to the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force. The kit includes drones, metal detectors, walkie-talkies, inspection machines, security clothing and shoes and a video transmission system. Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavari says the materials will help the Seoul's police deliver a safe game and is just another example of the sound police cooperation between the two countries and is also another fulfilled promise by China in supporting Solomon Islands to host the game. So obviously very complimentary of China. Um, PM Sogavare said China's Ministry of Public Security has also increased the personnel input of the China Police Liaison Team as well as conducting security training for Seoul's police officers. Now, the People's Republic of China's Charge d'Affaires, Mr Ding Yonghua, said, quote, peace and security, development and prosperity are a joint pursuit of the two countries. Wow, we're going to be there soon. So uh, I know. It'll be we... really interesting on the ground because I don't think anyone has been able to mention Pacific Games without also Having saying China security. as well too. So it's interesting. <laughs> It'll be interesting to look forward to that. Okay, Fiji, uh, they've made it official that it's withdrawing from the UN joint statement on Xinjiang. Yeah, now this was around la- late last week. Well, speculation that it was about to, um, but the official announcement came yesterday with a statement confirming that Fiji would withdraw from that 51-country joint statement on human rights violations in Xinjiang, China, which was issued earlier this month at the UN Third Committee. Now, the statement urged China to address human rights violations against Uyghur and Muslim minorities in Xinjiang. The Fiji government justified the black flip by reaffirming its commitment to build enduring cooperation and, quote, non-interference with the domestic affairs of diplomatic partners. Um, The statement ends by saying Fiji would quote, avail itself to China to give assurances and its commitment to the relationship between the two countries. It just gets more interesting and interesting every time we talk <laughs> about these does. countries. Uh, but look, Talia, thank you very much for bringing our news rep this morning. No worries. Hey, still to come on the show, a top think tank cautions the Australian government to be careful not to burden Pacific countries with debt and still that lack of culturally appropriate support for Pacifica communities dealing with the justice system in Aotearoa. You've been tuning into Pacific Beat. Join me, Sosefina Formoli, for On The Record, an hour-long deep dive into the music that has made an incredible range of artists from right across the Pacific. We'll discover stories behind songs of inspiration, songs of activism, songs of evolution and songs of pride as we chop it up with Pacifica musicians you already know and love and hopefully some you'll be meeting and falling in love with for the first time. On The Record, Tuesdays at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. It's your host, Aggie Dubon. A top think tank cautions the Australian government to be careful not to burden Pacific countries with debt as it expands its role as a major lender in the region in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. The latest Lowy Pacific aid map shows that Australia remains by far the largest provider of foreign aid in the Pacific, delivering around $17 billion between 2008 and 2021. That's about 40% 
15% of all overseas development finance in the region. Meanwhile, Chinese development assistance continues to fall, with the Lowy Institute saying Beijing has now well and truly abandoned its loud and brash approach to Pacific development projects. It's been replaced with a strategy to fund small and beautiful initiatives, which win political cap- uh, capital rather in key countries. So joining us to discuss the latest aid map is our foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jidgets. With that, I say good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Aggie. <laughs> Always good to have you on the show. Wow, look, it wasn't too long ago that the Australian government was warning the region about China's so-called uh, debt trap diplomacy. Uh, diplomacy. How was it that Australia is now being warned not to overload its neighbours with debt? Yeah, so it's an interesting dynamic. I mean, the the narrative around uh, debt trap diplomacy was always really fiercely contested. Some Pacific watchers and analysts thought that it was a real phenomenon. Others were always sceptical. They said, yes, China's a big player and a big lender in, in the region, but but there's no evidence it's necessarily actually actively trying to, quote-unquote, entrap countries. But either way, whoever was right in that particular debate, one thing is clear. When you look at actual direct foreign aid and bilateral assistance to the region, China has actually been falling since 2016. And what we've seen since then is exactly that trend continuing. We see it continuing to slide down uh, the rankings. Australia has always been number one as the top Pacific aid donor. The latest, uh, the latest figures which we see basically show that it's essentially given 40% of all aid since, 20, uh, since, 26, uh, since uh, 2012 when the numbers started to be collected. Um, But China just continues to fall down. So now it's giving about $240 million. Uh, That was in the last calendar year that Lowy looked at, uh, 2021. Now, that doesn't mean that China has gone away. Uh, It's still a major player in the Pacific and in some ways is trying to increase its influence through, for example, as Lowy says, these really targeted projects, so-called small and beautiful, to use a a Chinese phrase that they've they've used more broadly. Uh, And, of course, it's a huge player in other ways uh, in terms of infrastructure. A lot of Chinese-owned companies are actually taking up multilateral institution projects in the Pacific. So they've got a huge footprint that way uh, and political influence um, and strategic influences as uh, efforts has, have also been intensifying. But when you look at lending, when you look at aid directly, Australia is still by far the biggest player and China in some ways or by some measures is falling away a bit. Bit of a game of geopolitical volleyball, isn't it? Uh, has Australia's move, though, to become a lender for infrastructure projects affected its traditional approach, though, of providing grants like for less tangible things like improved governance, economic development and health? Yeah, this has been a shift that we've seen in recent years and which Lowy captures really neatly here. Uh, Australia moving away from its traditional emphasis on exactly, as you say, governance, health and education, and starting to become more of a player in the infrastructure space. In part... That's been a response to the fact that uh, that China was around, you know, that 2015, 2016, 2017 mark, uh, such a dominant player in that space. And Australia was basically feeling the urge to, to catch up. Uh, Pacific Island countries were telling Australia that they wanted more in the infrastructure space. So that was the response that, uh, that, uh, that, that, uh, that Australia felt like it had to make. Um, But what we're now seeing is that Australia is emerging as China recedes as a major lender in the region. Now, the vast bulk of all of its money 
that it's giving is still in grants. You don't want to overstate this, but increasingly now you've seen it emerge as a lender to countries like Papua New Guinea and Fiji, in some cases some really big loans to PNG, to PNG in particular. Uh, and the warning from the Lowy Institute here is pretty clear. We know that Pacific Island countries are facing some, some pretty difficult debt situations in the wake of COVID. So the, the warning from Lowy is, look, Australia just has to tread really carefully and be wary about accumulating too much, uh, too much uh, debt with these Pacific Island countries in case it risks exacerbating their debt distress. Yeah, when we look at the certain projects that they are, are funding, is money then just being overspent in the Pacific region? Overspent, no. Uh, in the sense that, in the sense that there's still a gap, at least according to Lowy, between what the Pacific needs and what it's being provided. That's despite the fact that aid in 2021, the most recent year that they looked at, has actually reached a record high of around 5.5 billion. Lowy says that's good to see, but it's still not enough, in part because climate change is already having an impact on the Pacific and the, the need for, for climate financing is so enormous. And at this stage, it's simply not being met by, by, by donors. Um, so it's not a question of too much money sloshing around. It's still a case of not enough, probably. But the thing that's causing the anxiety is the fact that you have seen in recent years grant financing increasing, but not very much, and loans really ratcheting up. Um, that's a point of anxiety for, for, for these specific watchers. Yeah. Stephen, uh, on to China, though. Then how has its development assistance to the region just changed and Why? Well, the, the the one that really jumped out at me, the figure that Lowy pointed out, is that it used its average project size used to be around forty million dollars, and it's now down to five million dollars. So that gives you a sense. You typically saw these big, bold public projects, particularly in places like Solomon Island. Uh, sorry, uh, particularly in places like Vanuatu, uh, Tonga, Samoa. Uh, where you saw major public projects being very proudly built by the Chinese, you know, emblazoned with their with their um, with their with their with their symbols and and the like. So um, so the the big change that we've seen since then is that China has basically pulled away from those big high profile projects into smaller ones, with some exceptions, like for example the big Pacific Games infrastructure in Solomon Islands. So they they they're basically targeting those projects that are going to win them the most amount of political capital, if you like, in, in countries. Now, the other thing is that we're seeing them focus more tightly on countries where they think they've got more capacity to, to win favour. So, in particular, Kiribati and Solomon Islands, after the switch from Taiwan, we've seen, obviously, big infusions of money there. Uh, also, countries like Vanuatu, to a lesser extent, PNG. So, countries where they feel like they're having success they're focusing more heavily on those where countries, you know, perhaps like Fiji, where they've had perhaps less success in recent years, uh, that trend isn't there. Uh, so if not for Australia or China, where else could funding be sourced? Well, there's still lots of others in the region. One of the things that uh, this report points to is uh, the role that multilateral institutions continue to play. When COVID first hit, it was multilateral institutions which really stepped up. So the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank, uh, to, to help out. Um, Australia then took up the reins more obviously in sort of 2021 in the most recent data. But there are other players as well. Japan is a major player in the Pacific. 
uh, and actually has stepped up quite a bit with climate finance in particular, um, more of a heavy emphasis on climate finance than, than other countries. And then, of course, there's also the United States coming back into the region in, 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 in its own right. And, of course, New Zealand, which is still, although much smaller than Australia, a big player as well. You talk about climate change, and I know it is a huge issue. So, yeah, did Lowy take a look at aid for climate change uh, adaptation? Uh, yes, it did. And it found that whilst there's a lot of money that is sloshing around that's notionally, quote unquote, climate change focused, not all of these projects, in fact, only a few of them are really focused on that core adaptation and mitigation work. So they actually found that, yes, there's a lot of, quote unquote, climate finance, but a lot of that has only a loose connection to climate change. And the, the Institute says there still needs to be much more money ploughed into actual mitigation and adaptation projects. And that's a top priority. Mm. Stephen, I know you've touched on it a little bit, but what does Lowy Institute think about the overall aid picture in the Pacific? I know it's gone up and down in previous years. Oh, sorry, you just dropped out there, Aggie. Can you say that again? No worries. Uh, I was just saying, what does the Lowy Institute think about the overall aid picture in the Pacific, as we know it's been up and down on previous years? Yeah, the overall picture is up. It's a record number, uh, $5.5 billion. So it's it's a large amount, uh, and it is increased. But as I said, the main anxiety is about the focus that we're seeing at the moment, uh, in particular on grant and loan rather than grant financing. Stephen, we want to just say thank you very much for your time this morning. Always appreciate you being on the show. No worries. Thanks so much for having me, Aggie. Cheers. Cheers. That is foreign affairs reporter Stephen Jetjits. While a new report highlights the lack of culturally appropriate support for Pacific people in Aotearoa, New Zealand within the criminal justice system. The report Pacific's People and the Criminal Justice System in Aotearoa, New Zealand is a result of more than 50 interviews with Pacifica sharing their experiences with the police, courts and prisons. Major changes to New Zealand's justice system calls for the introduction of cultural officers to improve access for Pacifica. Lead author of the report, Litia Tuipurelevo, explains the findings to reporter Mackenzie Smith. It's important to recognise, and I think it always needs to be acknowledged, that the criminal justice system that we engage with in New Zealand is a secret justice system. It is one that has been introduced um, through the process of secret colonisation. And so many of the concepts of justice um, do not necessarily align with how specific communities traditionally um, would engage with justice processes. So one thing that we looked at, for example, was like in specific community settings, say in the island, there is an emphasis on collective accountability and collective healing and the ways that we collectively as a community address harm within our community. But the system in New Zealand is very much an individualised justice system. It is a Westminster system. And many of the, I think, underlying ideologies but also the way that the processes work in practice can be very isolating, very alienating and very confusing for many specific peoples that uh, are trying to navigate the system itself. And as part of this research, you spoke to more than 50 knowledge holders or Pacific people with experience in the criminal justice system. Can you tell me a bit about what you heard from them? So the knowledge holders that we spoke to, uh, of course, only represent a sample of you know, the many Pacific people who have engaged or are engaging with the justice system. 
And but what we did find from those that we spoke with is, is listening to their stories, and often we would talk to them for you know, quite a long time and get a lot of, um, you know, there was a lot that they told us that we couldn't include everything. But from what they what they did tell us is that there has been overwhelmingly negative experiences in moving through the justice system, which is disappointing to hear, but also not surprising to hear at the same time. Um, and it confirms a lot of what many people in our community have been saying for decades and generations now, that the justice system uh, is not fit for purpose, and that yeah, those overwhelmingly negative experiences, again, of that feeling of isolation, of confusion, of alienation for those who are survivors of harm or who've been affected by harm, that they didn't feel that there was proper accountability or that their voices were heard, and for those who had offended or caused harm, that uh, the system itself it, they didn't seem like had any, you know, concrete rehabilitative prospects for them either. So by and large, across the board, um, you know, those experiences are not positive moving through the justice system. Many of these recommendations are quite ambitious. For for example, uh, removing benefit fraud prosecutions, uh, legalising recreational cannabis. Are you hopeful these can be brought into force or are these more um, future goalposts that you want to work toward? In the research, we set out short-term possibilities and long-term possibilities. But the one thing that was very uh, important for us and we're very clear about is that, yes, we do have a long-term maximalist vision um, that we would like to orient toward. And the first step that is that acknowledgement that the current justice system is is not transformative, it is not working, and it has not been working for a very long time. Um, and we acknowledge, you know, as the people, we have uh, overrepresented in that, but it's really not working particularly for our Indigenous population, Māori and Aotearoa. And, you know, that, that's a, something we want to be very clear about, that there needs to be, you know, a rejection of the system as it currently stands, and that we need to reorient our vision into new possibilities and reimagine new possibilities. So yes, we have a very bold and ambitious, I guess you could say, goalpost that is set up, but I think it's important to have something like that because it kind of keeps you on track. If it, if it, a lot of what happens, we see time and time again with criminal justice reform and reform, um, reformist sort of propositions and ideas is that they've it, it, it's not contributing to a larger goal um, and it's just the same things and same policy repeating over and over again. I mean, we see it, uh, you know, again, always in through the election cycle, the tough on crime, you know, laws and policies, they come up again and they'll kind of die down of it and they'll come up again and it's just that we're doing the same thing. So I think it's important to hold ourselves to a long-term vision and that vision that we talk about is not something that we sort of pulled out of thin air it is very much um, what we see as a continuation and solidarity with other, you know, community groups, activists, researchers, scholars, um, such as Matua Moana Jackson and uh, the work that has been done by other, particularly Indigenous scholars throughout Te Moana Nui Akira. That vision has been crafted for generations and we're sort of just joining the waka on that as well. And that was researcher Litia Duiburi-Level speaking with Mackenzie Smith. 
humans and even some fish species are migrating the world over in attempts to adapt to a changing climate. Now scientists are helping a threatened Tasmanian gum tree find a new home. It's an assisted migration designed to stave off the tree's extinction. Fiona Breen has the story. What's special about it is it grows in very few places. A lot of it was cleared for agriculture, so a small range and then quite a lot of past clearance. It is a really beautiful tree, so one of the original threats to that population was people going to collect foliage for florist arrangements. Dr Magali Wright is describing a eucalypt tree, commonly known as Morrisby's gum. This tree is found in parts of Tasmania and is critically endangered. The adult foliage has a a grey-green to it. It has a silvery kind of blush on the capsules, the flower buds, and the young leaves are round and they have that same bluish blush to them. Hello, I'm Fiona Breen, and I'm chatting to Dr Wright, who's part of a team working to ensure the survival of this species of tree in the face of a changing climate here in southeastern Tasmania. It's the fragmentation that's happened with with clearance and the fact that what we have remaining of them are on the drier slopes. So they've kind of lost their optimal habitat where in their native range which would have been down on the flats where where there was a bit more moisture in the landscape and what's left of them is on the drier slopes and they're not doing so well there. Dr Wright and other scientists are working on a bold project to help this species of tree to migrate and they've found a new home for these gum trees in a climate that will be more agreeable into the future. We've done plantings in what's predicted to be a, a future climate range for them. We're taking all of that genetic diversity that we have and we're putting it in a place that they're more likely to be happy under a changing climate. It's something that we really need to think about with probably all of our eucalypt species. We've just driven up from the Cremorne area and have come up to the east coast just near Triabunna. And we're at a place where they've planted 1,000 of these Morrisby gums. And I'm here with Dr. Rebecca Jones, who's been involved with this project. We're looking out at these small Morrisby gums at the moment. Are you happy with how it's going? Yeah, they're about, they're about a year old. And um, we've had 97% survival at just one year of age. So we're really pleased, really heartened with um, how, they're, how they're doing at the moment. They're looking great. It remains to be seen, of course, in the drying years ahead, how they go. Why have you done this? Why, why go for this sort of transmigration? Uh, well, what we're doing is we're helping these species that are um, predicted to decline further under climate change. This is one of the broad climate sites that was predicted for Marisbei to inhabit under climate change. It can't get here very easily by itself. Seed in eucalypts doesn't move very far just a few metres. So we had to help it move into this area here. So in essence, climate change is moving faster than the Morrisby gum can can move itself or catch up or, or adapt. That's right. So, yeah, under climate change, species might, well, they could go extinct, which we don't really want to happen. They might adapt or evolve 
um, to that new climate, but we know that they're unlikely to be able to do that at a rate. You know, So all of these species around here have evolved to climate change, but the climate change that we're predicting is going to happen much more rapidly um, than the natural climate change that they've experienced, and so they're unlikely to be able to evolve to that. And then the third thing they might do is move to more suitable areas, but trees can't move very easily, uh, so we have to give them a helping hand. So is this a bit of a test case, in a way, of sort of saving a a gum tree that really was close to extinction? Yeah, well, what we hope to achieve from this, other than helping this species survive through climate change, is an understanding of um, whether our models work, whether we can predict where species are going to be happier under climate change. And so by embedding experiments um, in these plantings, we'll be able to answer those questions in the future as we assess them. So do you think that this assisted migration of species might be something we see more of in the future? Yeah, well, we're facing an extinction crisis and people need to be um, bold in their um, conservation actions. So while I think it's important to conserve species in their native range and put a lot of effort into that, I think it's also important to start thinking about moving species into the range um, that they're predicted to be able to inhabit under climate change. It's It sounds scary, but it's, it's a fact of life that some eucalypts might end up being threatened. Yeah, so at the moment, this is one of the most threatened species, uh, eucalypt species in Australia, um, but it's likely that we'll have species that at the moment are very widespread that may um, become endangered. And so what we learn from um, the experiments that we're doing here will help us design conservation strategies for those um, species that might be not under threat at the moment. And that's Dr Beck Jones, a eucalypt geneticist with the University of Tasmania, chatting there with Fiona Breen. And that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, let's look back at one of our main stories today. Nauru's parliament has elected longtime MP David Adiang as its new president. Human rights group Amnesty International says it hopes the new leadership will see a change in the refugee and asylum seeker situation in the country. New appointment offers new opportunities to respect and protect human rights in Nauru, which is all the more important now that we've recently heard that there's been 11 Tamil-speaking asylum seekers uh, sent to Nauru again. So what we really don't want to see here is history repeating itself. Amnesty's Pacific researcher Kate Schutze. Uh, check out our stories at abc.net.au forward slash Pacific but you can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. I'll be back tomorrow at 6am PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia though because news is next and after that you've got a Jacob McGuire with Nijan Daily. Until tomorrow, I am Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat.